0: Good evening, this is a special broadcast of Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new LA. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is an independent, eclectic, nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. In tonight's program, Leonard Chang, author of five novels, including a mystery trilogy featuring a Korean-American detective, shares his experience as a writer his influences, his concerns, and his background as an Asian American. Reflecting upon autobiography, race, the writing life, and diverse topics such as Arnold Schwarzenegger's The Terminator and John Updike's literary career, Leonard Chang shares an evening of inspiration.
1: Tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about a bunch of things, all sort of weaving together issues of writing and Asian American issues, race, and some of my various obsessions. So not too long ago, while I was flipping through the channels, I found James Cameron's movie, The Terminator, just starting with the opening sequence of a futuristic war. And I was about to continue channel surfing until the image cut to a modern-day garbage truck, its front forks lifting a dumpster. And I was immediately struck by the forced dual imagery of technology, of the not very subtle cutting between future versus present-day machinery, I hadn't seen this movie in years, and I decided to sit back and wait and watch a few more minutes. There's something utterly compelling about this primal chase story, particularly the science fiction elements of a robotic hitman coming from the future to rub out the mother of the man not yet born who will lead the rebellion against the supercomputers. Since the movie came out in 1983, there have been vastly more sophisticated time-paradox storylines with higher production values, even on TV. But Terminator was fascinating. The calculating, methodical, emotionless, and utterly relentless Terminator, Cyberdyne Systems Model 101, was a model of determination. Now I realize that by anthropomorphizing the robot, I am committing what logicians call a pathetic fallacy, in which I expose my arguments to objection by exhibiting human emotions to non-human things. So to call the Terminator determined is exhibiting a false emotional state. The Terminator is no more determined than a computer. Its decision-making process is heuristical, not emotional. I understand this, but it's hard not to see Arnold Schwarzenegger's massive body on the screen aiming his 45 Magnum long slides laser sighting at Sarah Connor's forehead and think, man, this guy is scary. We search for human relevance and Schwarzenegger offers that. In a way, by now you're probably wondering what the heck I'm getting at, but all this ties in with writing. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about what it takes to be a successful writer. I don't consider myself particularly successful as a writer yet because I'm still relatively young with a handful of novels. But I'm beginning, after doing this now for over a dozen years, beginning to get a stronger idea of what it takes to be successful. So perhaps I can start this by giving you an example of someone I think was successful, not at writing, but successful in general in spite of hardships and move from there. I think the clearest case of this is my mother who was the complete opposite of my father and consequently fought bitterly and violently with him and eventually divorced him. My mother, a stay-at-home mom for 15 or so years, suddenly thrust into the role of the breadwinner, took a job as a secretary at a real estate firm, and worked her way up in six years, and let me emphasize that, in six years, from secretary to a partner in the firm, from typing memos on their letterhead to having her name listed on the letterhead itself. She worked 18-hour days, a chunk of that time spent in her makeshift home office, the kitchen table. I'd say goodnight to her at her desk, and when I'd wake up early, I'd walk into the kitchen and she'd still be sitting there, the morning light now brighter than the bulb above her. I'd kiss her good morning and go to school. She went from driving a rusting Dodge Dart to a new Porsche 924, cherry red. And let me tell you how funny it was to see this tiny middle-aged Asian woman wearing leather gloves, mirrored sunglasses, speeding down Sunrise Highway in a Porsche, and getting speeding tickets. (laughs) And she never once gave me the hackneyed advice I heard so often from other sources, like my father. I witnessed what hard work was. I saw what it did. I knew who to watch and what to learn. Show me, don't tell me. There are many writers out there whose careers serve as great examples from which to learn. You've probably heard many of them yourself. You know the stories of Jack London, for example, receiving over 500 rejections before he sold his first short story. Or Frank Herbert having Dune rejected by every major publisher and eventually finding a publisher of automotive manuals to bring out his novel. Or Tom Clancy, who had a publisher of military books take his first novel. Or John Grisham, whose first publisher was a small division of a religious press and who sold books out of the trunk of his car. But let's take Jack London's story for a moment. It's easy to rattle off these examples without really considering the pain involved. Imagine that you're this young, ambitious writer living in your mother's house, as Jack London did, despite all of your friends having finished college and working at jobs. You have no money, but you want to write. Your mother shakes her head whenever she speaks of you, to her friends. You work hard on your short stories. They take anywhere from a week to six months to complete and you show them to friends and other writers who give you their often conflicting opinions, and yet you rewrite and throw out and rewrite again and again. Finally, you gather the nerve to send this manuscript out to a magazine. A real editor will read it. You type it out carefully, cursing the mistakes, and type it out again. You study the magazine you are sending the story to and decide they just might like your work. You adjust the envelope, check and recheck it obsessively then go to the post office and make sure the envelope doesn't get crushed in their mailbox. You go home and wait. Maybe you start another story. Maybe you reread the magazine, trying to imagine the editor's response. You dream a little. You envision not only publication, but prizes and awards and a book contract. You picture yourself on a book tour, and men and women scream and faint over at your presence, ripping off their clothes and throwing them at you at your book signing. And you see yourself buying a big house on Mount Tam and a nice car, maybe even a Porsche 924. And you soon have a loving family and more books on bestseller lists and more fans. And eventually you receive the Nobel Prize for Literature. <laughs> Stockholm, here you come. Then the story comes back in the mail with a small Xerox slip. On it, smugged and faded from repeated photocopies of photocopies, barely legible are the words. We cannot use your submission at this time. Thank you. You check the envelope for something else. There isn't anything else, except your story, which has been creased and crumpled in the mail. Your paperclip is missing. (laughs) You're a little disappointed, of course, but figure, hey, they just don't know what they're missing. So you send it out again. You dream, you wait, and another rejection, and another, and another. Can you imagine now doing this 500 times, with your mother shaking her head at you? Jack London did it. Was he nuts? Was he stupid? What makes a person willing to go through this kind of rejection? No one likes to be rejected, to be told, you are simply not good enough. Please allow me to give you one more good example of this, a more contemporary one, to help illustrate my point. It's not as dramatic, but more relevant. And the example I have in mind is of John Updike. John Updike is the author of two dozen novels, half a dozen poetry collections, eight story collections, seven books of literary criticism, two plays, one memoir, five children's books, and books on art criticism and golf. He has said on numerous occasions that his goal is to produce, quote, about a book a year, unquote, and he has maintained that schedule more or less since 1958. He has won every major American literary prize there is to win and has been translated into almost any language you can think of. He is, by most accounts, one of the most celebrated 20th century American writers. What's interesting about Updike is that his career started out as a promising but mixed one, a series of highs and lows that could have derailed as it has many other writers, and the range of critical reactions he has received throughout the early part of his career is astonishing. He has always had a strong, positive reaction from a small group of critics, beginning with his first book of short stories. But he has also provoked an equally strong, if not stronger, and certainly louder, group of protests from critics for whatever accolades he has received. But here's the point. Updike continues writing. Less victualic reviews have frozen other writers, but these hostile reactions are barely a blip in Updike's literary radar. Part of it might have been that he does have positive reactions to encourage him. But even with these incentives, what compels a person to continue writing year in and year out for almost 50 years? What motivates someone to spend so many hours in front of a typewriter, alone with his thoughts, uncertain how his words will be received? That's the essential question. and The answer, of course, is this. John Updike is the Terminator. There's a scene in the Terminator when Reese and Sarah believe they have won. Do you remember this? After the Terminator is repeatedly shot, thrown from a speeding motorcycle, run over by a truck, and blown up in a gasoline explosion, he, or it, staggers out of the flames, engulfed, and collapses in a fiery heap. After an uncertain moment, as Sarah stares out over the fire, we believe, as she does, that she has finally won. She closes her eyes with relief. Reese calls out her name, and they clutch one another. We did it, she says. We got it. The music hints at an end. But in the background, we see something rising up. New, ominous music with a heavy bass swells. The flesh burned off. A metallic robot. The Terminator, unsheathed, stands, its red eyes unwavering. Sarah cries out, no, and the Terminator, dragging a wounded leg, limps after them. A pneumatic hiss reminiscent of the hiss of the opening garbage truck scene, reveals the inner creakings of the sophisticated robot. When I first saw this film years ago, I was amazed. As the Terminator stood up amidst the flames, I thought, this thing is amazing. Scary, but amazing. (laughs) But it's this relentless pursuit of a goal that makes me think of Updike. I'm not trying to say that Updike dispatches books in the same manner as the Terminator dispatches bodies, but there is something ruthlessly methodical about vowing and keeping a self-imposed schedule of writing a book a year. Methodical and perhaps a little bit frightening. When we see the Terminator going through the phone book and ripping out a page with all the Sarah Connors listed, and then we watch him hunt down all the Sarah Connors alphabetically, it's quite chilling. And when I think of Updike looking at the calendar and thinking, time for another novel, and then he writes one, <laughs> that's also chilling, for a writer at least. It's made even more frightening when we see how good Updike often is at what he does. Not every book Updike writes is perfect, and he knows it. On more than one occasion, he has admitted the various imperfections of some of his novels. Regarding his novel, Marry Me, he says, quote, I didn't think the book well came off. It lacked the kind of playful, creatorly something of the novels that I'm proud of and the novels by others that I enjoy possess. On the other hand, it did seem too good to lie fallow, and the second chapter had appeared in the New Yorker some years earlier, so I did bring it out. This was a revelation to me. Part of this might stem from his Depression-era upbringing and a Protestant work ethic of never wasting anything, even a good chapter. But in the same way that The Terminator will go after Sarah Connors to get to the real one, Updike will allow imperfect novels to leave the study to fulfill a self-imposed quota. This workmanlike approach, further reinforced by his bookshelf analogy, makes perfect sense when you study Updike's characters, most of whom have interesting but repetitive and routine jobs. In one Frank interview, in which Updike later claimed to have been on pain-killing drugs, he admitted, quote, I'm a plugger, even the way Harry Angstrom sits in front of his linotype machine day after day, reminding me of myself, of the way I sit in front of the typewriter. He said this in 1971, 15 or perhaps 16 novels and six short story collections later, he continues to plug away, one book a year. Quote, it's not a man, it's a machine, Reese says to Sarah. It can't be bargained with, it can't be reasoned with, it doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear, and it absolutely will not stop ever." I didn't finish the story about my mother. You see, there's a twist. Not too long after she was made a partner, they brought in another partner, a man recruited from a different real estate firm. This new man and my mother didn't get along at all. First, he was bigoted. And though his racism was never overt, never manifested itself in ways that the other partners saw. My mother knew it from the comments he made to her, from the condescending attitude he often had toward her. Second, he was sexist, but in a business where your worth is determined not by your liberal or illiberal attitudes, by how much money you brought in, he was considered quite worthy. My mother and this man clashed often. She began to sense factions developing, conspiracies afoot, tensions grew. Some of you might be thinking, oh, sure, if there's a problem at work, yell racism, sexism, rather than address real issues. But in this case, it was the issue. Her work was never in question, and yet she began to feel animosity from her partners. What was happening? Could one man turn her colleagues against her? Quite frankly, yes. Shortly after the head of the firm, my mother's mentor, decided to retire, something strange happened. The new president of the firm, the son of the retiring president, announced that he was disbanding the firm, the partnership, the business. It had grown too big, too burdensome, he said, and it was time for everyone to go on their own. There was some talk of accounting irregularities, of tax problems, of a softening real estate market, but nothing very concrete. It was strange, my mother thought, but here was the new president shutting down the firm, and she had little to say about it. He held controlling interest. It was, more or less, his firm. Here is the interesting part. Shortly after the breakup, my mother learned something startling. Can you guess what? She learned that the president had reformed a new partnership, a new firm, and it contained all of the original partners except one, her. Who do you think was the new vice president, the second in command, the man whom she had fought with in the past? In order to get rid of my mother, they disbanded the firm, and started a new one, and pointedly excluded her. My mother was devastated, of course. So what did she do? She could have tried legal action. But the partners were crafty. By disbanding the firm, they did not violate the partnership agreement. And my mother didn't want to go through a protracted and extremely costly legal battle since although she had a little money, it wasn't about to last long since she was still raising three kids, all of whom were heading or about to head off to college. And that, as most of you know, is not an inexpensive endeavor. So what did she do? What did the Terminator do after being blown up in a gasoline tanker? What did Updike do after being labeled by the New York Times as a clumsy, string-puller, chauvinistic puppeteer? What did Jack Lennon do after the 499th rejection? Well, the first thing my mother did was to sell her Porsche, and she bought a used Honda Civic, and then she started her own company. No pity, no remorse, no fear. I mention this to introduce the issue of race with respect to my novels. Race was just one of a long list of obstacles that my mother had to overcome throughout her career in real estate. And although you might not have realized this, race and ethnicity often become a strange burden to some writers. In some instances, writing about Asian-Americans, as I have, has created some interesting problems with publishers. You might be thinking, "Mm, no way. With the success of writers like Amy Tan and Maxine Kingston, any writer working within that wide-ranging genre of Asian-American literature will have it easy. But therein lies a problem. It's precisely the wild successes of the Tans and the Kingstons that have created the dilemma for many Asian American writers because most publishers wanted to emulate these successes are looking for another imitant. They're often looking for exoticized portrayals of Asians and Asian Americans, depictions that will appeal to a generic audience's desire to see something different. And to give you a sort of a general idea of what I'm talking about, allow me to quote two short excerpts from two different rejection letters both from extremely well-known editors in New York. The first one is more recent, written to my agent. In most ways, it's a perfectly good book. What fails for me is that virtually nothing is made of the fact that these guys are Korean. I suppose in the alleged melting pot of America, that might be a good thing, but for the book, it doesn't lend anything even lightly exotic to the narrative or the characters, which might have made them stand out. I feel confident you'll have a little trouble placing this as it is better than most books of its type that I see with regularity. Before sending it out again, you might suggest to the author that he make the characters a little more ethnic than merely going out for one Korean meal together. The second letter is older, also from an editor. I'm sorry to say that the promise of the early pages were not fulfilled by the balance of the rest. The characters, especially the main character, just do not seem Asian enough. They act like everyone else. They don't eat Korean food, they don't speak Korean, and you have to think about ways to make these characters more ethnic, more different. We get too much of the minutiae of the characters' lives and none of the details that separate Koreans and Korean-Americans from the rest of us. The main character acts like every American mom, and even her affair with a secondary character is overly familiar. For example, in the scene when she looks into the mirror, you don't show how she sees her slanted eyes or how she thinks of her Asianness. This, by the way, is a a direct quote. And of course, my problem with this response is that Korean Americans aren't significantly different from the rest of us, whoever that is. And to fault a novel because the Korean American characters don't eat Korean food, don't speak Korean, and don't think about their slanted eyes every time they look in the mirror is utter ignorance. Anyone who thinks that an Asian American will look in the mirror, incidentally, the main character, Elaine, was looking in the mirror because she was about to go on a first date. Anyone who thinks Asians stare in the mirror and contemplate their Asianness clearly has tremendous (laughs) misconceptions about race and ethnicity. Now, I admit when I was young, very young, I would look in the mirror and almost in surprise see an Asian face. I would play with my eyelashes and wonder what made my eyes so distinct. But the character in the novel was in her mid-thirties and race was the furthest thing from her mind at that particular moment. I was reminded of an incident when William Styron's book, The Confessions of Nat Turner, came out and the literary community was polarized by the audacity of this Southern white man writing about a black slave revolutionary. From the point of view of the black slave and assigning, some argued, racist and stereotypical views of black men to the character, like, for example, desiring white women. What the agent's letter reminded me of was a comment that Toni Morrison made that she, Morrison, respected Styron's right to creative license in art but there was a scene when Nat Turner looks at the blackness of his hand and registers his blackness in a very obvious and contrived way. And Morrison said that this scene rang very false, as any African-American would know. When I look in the mirror now, I don't look at the Asianness of my eyes any more than an African-American registers the blackness of his hand. Do you know what I look at? The same things everyone else looks at in the mirror. The part in my hair, the pimple on my nose, the piece of broccoli stuck in my teeth from lunch, the wrinkles forming in my mouth. When I look in the mirror, I see what you see in the mirror, a person. As I mentioned, as a child, all this was different. The realization and knowledge of my difference from those around me, was the sudden and often shocking revelation of otherness was clearly and constantly on my mind. Perhaps this is why many of my early short stories tend to be about children because short stories allow me to transform tiny, sometimes insignificant moments into frightening realizations, unvoiced, sometimes unwritten epiphanies. And I write short stories about adults, even about the elderly. But it seemed that, at the time, I kept going back to issues of childhood In those handful of early short stories. My novels are slightly different because of our novels' breadth and scope, because of the depth of characterization acquired and the length of history, stories, and development involved, I tend to shy away from writing strictly about children. But I think what ties everything together of what I've written thus far, regardless of the form, is that the characters' lives are often disconnected, estranged, hermetic. I can try to posit an elaborate theory of why I do this, relating to the experience of being Asian American and the attempt of my characters to resist the look of the other, existential alienation, or maybe even throwing in some anthropological observations about assimilation and acculturation, maybe the sublimated or not so sublimated racism. But I hesitate to intellectualize too much of what I do. That's not really my job, but the job of the critic or the reviewer. However, I will say this much. I don't believe that there's a true common Asian-American experience, despite what we might hear from reviewers of popular Asian-American novels. And although I'm sure we can find similar experiences of racism, or immigrant difficulties, that this is not strictly an Asian-American experience and even the diversity within the term Asian-America and the difficulty to categorize people who fall within that very broad classification should tell you how hard and how dangerous it is to produce such distinctions. This isn't to say that other Asian-American writers are wrong or faking it when they write about communities as they know it. But when editors and agents start telling me what my novel should be like, I get worried I was never really part of any Asian American community. I didn't even know any other Asian Americans until practically college, but that's not entirely true because there was one boy in my school who was such a self-hating ethnic that he used to beat the crap out of me whenever we saw each other. But that was pretty much the extent of my Asian American community. My parents did try to take me to a Korean church for a while, but I didn't know how to handle that and ended up going to the movies while my parents went to the church, making my place of Sunday worship the movie Matinees rather than the Valley Stream Methodist Church. A common connecting element of community is language. And here again, I find myself at odds with what I see and read in popular culture, either by or about Asian Americans. I can't speak Korean. I can't read Korean. I can't understand a word of Korean. My parents are immigrant Koreans, and the reason why I never learned their mother tongue was that I was developing a speech impediment when I was younger. And one of the prevailing theories of developmental language at the time, when I was growing up, was that having two languages at home confused the child. We know this now to be false. But my parents were told by doctors to speak one language to me. And of course, they chose English, the language around them. However, they still spoke Korean to each other. And I grew up not knowing a word of what my parents were saying to each other when they fought and fight they did. And so, as I mentioned in one of my short stories, uh, the Korean language, for me, became associated with violence. What's interesting about all this stuff I've been rambling about is that it ties into my Alan Choice Mystery Trilogy, the third installment, Fade to Clear, appearing last year. This was not an e- easy series to get started. The first of the series, Over the Shoulder, set in the Bay Area, has a Korean-American man, Alan Choice, as the protagonist. And although everyone within my immediate circle of writers, critics, and friends like the novel, my literary agent had a very difficult time finding the right publisher for this. The first problem was how to define a novel that wasn't squarely within the crime genre since it involved the protagonist's search not only for the killer but a search into the past and to the issues of his family. How do you sell a mystery thriller that I tried to make as introspective as a memoir? Commercial publishers with strong mystery lists told my agent that this wasn't commercial enough for them. They wanted more action, more spectacle. Literary publishers, on the other hand, told my agent that it, this wasn't literary enough, clearly, since there are people running around for guns, for heaven's sake, and they couldn't put this alongside their literary novels. This disappointed me, not only because I wanted to sell the novel, but because the publishers had such rigid and narrow conceptions of what constituted a mystery novel. A mystery, for me, has requirements of form, not formula. A mystery doesn't have to have all action all the time. A mystery doesn't have to follow any rigid set of guidelines. No, for me, a mystery adheres to a general form, i.e. a crime is committed and we must discover the solution, in the same way that a sonnet, a haiku, or any kind of formal poetry has structural rules. The second problem was the presence of an Asian American protagonist that didn't fall into any of the categories the editors were familiar with. Bluntly put, when they realized the main character was Asian American, they expected an Asian American story, whatever that is. No, this isn't a story about assimilation and acculturation, about first or second generation Korean Americans trying to understand what it is to be an American and grappling with issues of race. And the narrator is Korean American, but he is completely American. No, this isn't a novel about searching for identity within the context of being a racial minority and outsider. It's a novel about identity within the context of families, and it just so happens that the protagonist and his family are Asian. Race was secondary to the novel. It wasn't about race. And this created some confusion. Some readers wanted more access into the Korean American community. But race, although an important component of the protagonist, wasn't the only component. Race was one facet of a multifaceted character. We are just not our race. So, by the third time the manuscript was rejected, my agent was puzzled. He had been certain that this novel would be snapped up. By the fifth rejection, he was getting a little nervous. We were to read the rejection letters and he kept saying to me, they don't get it, they just don't get what you're doing. By the twelfth rejection, he was downright gloomy. But I was undeterred. I faced many, many more rejections than that for my work. Well, luckily enough for me, there was an editor who saw what I was trying to do. And two printings later, translation sales of France, Japan, and Korea, a second novel, underkill published, and a third, Fade to Clear, receiving some of the best reviews I've ever received. I'm revealing all this to show you rather than tell you what should be obvious by now, especially if you are a writer and have aspirations to write. Remember this you have to be relentless. You have to be the Terminator, without pity, without remorse, and without fear. Thanks.
0: to a special broadcast of Zocalo on The Terminator, John Updike, and Asian America, an evening with Korean-American writer Leonard Chang. The Los Angeles Public Library and Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., present this monthly lecture series sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo would like to thank Semper Law Group, Washington Mutual, the LA Times, LAObserve.com, and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles for making this special program possible. For more information or to listen to past shows, please visit ZocaloLA.org. Thanks for joining us.